1: Today on Something You Should Know, you really should read your homeowner's insurance policy, and I'll explain why. Then understanding the science of peak performance so you can be a peak performer too. I
0: think the takeaway for elite athletes and performers is not that what they do is so extraordinary, it is. It's rare and it's beautiful and they make things look easy, but it's that they dedicated their life to get better. they dedicated their life to grow. And why do that?
1: Plus, why are so many people nearsighted? That answer will surprise you. And you may not realize it, but math can be fascinating, like the invention of zero.
2: Zero is a number. It's a number on the same footing as everything else. And it sounded crazy, because if you say, I've got a number of sheep, and somebody says, how many of them have you got? You say, zero. The response is, you haven't got a number of sheep. You haven't got any sheep at all.
1: All this today on Something You Should Know. something you should know fascinating intel the world's top experts and practical advice you can use in your life today something you should know with Mike Carruthers hi welcome to something you should know this is the time of year in the fall when all of my insurance comes up for renewal homeowners insurance car insurance So I've been spending a lot of time reviewing those documents. You know, homeowners insurance is is interesting. A lot of people believe that if you have something stolen out of your car, like a camera or a laptop or something, that your car insurance pays for that. but, But it probably doesn't. Usually your car insurance is all about the car and the people in it, not so much about the property in it. And So if your camera or laptop is stolen out of your car, usually your homeowner's insurance covers that. But there's more to it than that. There's also a good chance that your homeowner's insurance policy covers you if you get stuck with counterfeit money or a forged check. It might also protect you from getting sued for libel. Fraudulent purchases and money transfers on your credit or debit card may also be covered by your homeowner's insurance And if you're not a homeowner and you have renter's insurance, your renter's insurance may likely cover some, if not all, of these things. So it's actually a pretty good idea to read all the fine print of your homeowner's policy. You could find some nice surprises. And that is something you should know. (laughs) In doing a podcast like this, as you might imagine, I get pitched a lot of potential guests who want to come on and talk about peak performance, how you can do what you do better than you're doing it now, how to excel, how to be great, how to be your very best self. And having done this podcast and previously the radio show of Something You Should Know for many years, I've discovered that a lot of these people who talk about greatness and being your best self a lot of them say pretty much the same thing, and a lot of it is their opinion or their personal story, which, which is great, but it may not work for other people. Consequently, you don't hear a lot of those folks on this podcast, but nevertheless, I'm fascinated by peak performers. You know, you see them on TV all the time, the very best people in sports, business, music, whatever. What is it that allows them to rise to the very top of their game or profession? What's the difference between someone who does okay and someone who does amazingly well? What is the science of this? Well, a really good person to ask is Michael Gervais. He's a high-performance psychologist. He works on the science side of high-performance psychology, and he works with a lot of top sports athletes including the Seattle Seahawks football team and Coach Pete Carroll, as well as other top musicians and action sports stars and other game changers. He's also the host of a podcast where he talks with a lot of these folks. The podcast is called Finding Mastery, Conversations with Michael Gervais. Hi, Michael. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me. So what does it mean to be a high performance person have have I ever have I ever been a high performance person likely or or is it something that takes years and years of training or those moments where I think I'm re- god I'm really on fire today is that high performance
0: that's a great question and there are moments that we all experience our very best and what we've learned from the science of studying the best is that There are mental skills that we can train ourselves to be able to string together the ability to be our best. And when I say string together, it's like stitching this moment right now into the next, into the next, into the next. And those that are exceptional or world-leading at what they do have the ability to know what their best feels like, both from a craft perspective, the thing that they're doing, a physical perspective, how they're doing it, and then a mental perspective. So by definition, yes, of course you've had your best. And the begging question is, are you able to stitch that together with the moment right behind it?
1: No. And then maybe no. the moment behind that. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. no, Yeah, no, that's not, not at hard. all. <laughs> um, no, but the, the people that are at the tip of the arrow that you, the, as you as you put it, are they there because they did this, or they're already there and now they're just getting a little closer to the very tip of the arrow?
0: That's a great question as well. So there's only three things that we can train as humans. We can train our body. We can train our craft, the thing that we uh, do, if you will, and we can train our mind. And what I've experienced is that those that are on the world stage or world leading or those that are at the tip of the arrow, they know that there's much more to go within themselves. It's like potential is this wonderful concept that there's more in me. And I haven't met anyone that says, oh yeah, I've reached my potential, I'm done. (laughs) And so those that are highly dedicated and very hungry to explore the edges of their potential, they've said, most of them have said, I'm ridiculously conditioned in my body, I've I've spent thousands and tens of thousands of hours on, on my craft, but I haven't formally trained
1: my mind enough. But are they both parts of the same thing, a conditioned mind and a conditioned body? Aren't they more or less working together?
0: Oh, a thousand percent. You know, there was long ago when we said there's a split between the body and the mind. Descartes and great thinkers were saying there's a split. And that does help us to conceptualize the difference between the body and the mind. But they are intimately linked. We we don't even know the science of psychology for um, as long as it's been around. We don't know where the mind is. One day, maybe we will be able to observe thoughts, how much they weigh, where they go, the intensity of thoughts, the directions of thoughts. But we don't know where the mind is. We know where the brain is, that three pounds of silly putty that sits in the base of our skull that's the most amazing supercomputer in the world. But we have no idea where the mind is. So we know that they're intimately linked. And we do know, this is, I think, really important, that there's a direct linking between thoughts, and they go in this order of thoughts, impact um, emotions and body sensations, and those three together impact behavior, and those four together impact performance. So if you want to become more powerful as a human, we work up the chain of impact and become more clear about optimizing our thinking.
1: And so when you go up that chain, when you start, where do you start?
0: Yeah, so with thoughts. Like becoming more aware of thoughts, yeah, becoming more aware of thoughts, and then having the skill to adjust and guide those thoughts to be more optimal.
1: And what does that take? What does that take to adjust your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I think it's a lifetime. I I think that it takes a lifetime to do it, but it's not complicated, really. Now, the skill really is self-talk. And so once you're aware of your inner dialogue, your inner conversations, and how you're thinking about something, and then you need to, to refine the skill to be strong enough, even in the most hostile or rugged environments, to come back to this moment, in a more optimized or even optimistic way about how the future could turn out. And it, it, in some kind of ways, it sounds airy-fairy. It sounds like, what is he talking about? Because even in my own head, I'm like, God, there's so many words that describe the most simplest and, and the most elementary process of being human. Your thoughts are under your control. And there's a lot of ways that we practice being aware of our thoughts and then guiding our thoughts to be more effective.
1: And it, it does seem that that ability to hear yourself talking to yourself, and not only hear it, but also take it for what it's really worth, that it's probably a very negative self-talk, and and that it's really doing you no good, that being able to put the brakes on that, to me, I, I would suspect, would be a magical skill.
0: Yeah, it really is. And at some point it's like, you know, I'm I'm just done. I'm just done with beating myself up because I'm afraid other people are going to beat me up too. So I'm going to get there first and I'm just done with going into this meeting or going into this intense conversation I want to have with my loved one and just being over worried about how it could go wrong. I'm just done with being anxious about all the things that could be disastrous in my life. Yes, I need to think about all of them and plan accordingly, but I'm just done having the excessive worry that, um, all the things that could go wrong cuz i end up missing so many opportunities when when my mind is worried about all the things that could go wrong
1: i think when people hear you say things like you know be the, the awareness of the sensitivity of your thoughts i i, I don't know what that mean how do i do that what is that
0: yeah that's good i actually if i said that it was that i think what i what i probably did say exactly that but what i wanted to say is to become more sensitive right and and I don't mean sensitive like in a soft way, but more like a refined instrument. So the more sensitive the instrument is, the quicker they can pick up noise as as compared to the signal. And so if we're highly sensitive, meaning we're highly skilled enough to be aware of like negative thoughts or destructive thoughts or self-critical thoughts, then we can quickly course correct and come back to the signal. And the, so the signal-to-noise ratio ratio is something that... Uh, engineers spend a lot of time thinking about. They want to get to the signal to have the highest output. And from a mental standpoint, it's the same thing. The signal to noise ratio, the signal is being in the present moment, experiencing without critiquing and being in this moment. And the noise is the critical mind, the anxious mind, the frustrated mind, the worried mind. All of that is noise that pulls us away from being fully engaged in this moment. And what we know from a scientific uh, investigation is that flow state, which by definition is the most optimal state a human can be in. Athletes call it the zone, musicians call it being in the pocket, but it's called flow state from a science perspective. And That that flow follows deep focus. And go back to the, the signal to noise, deep focus is how you get connected to the signal. And, one last piece to this deep focus, is a trainable skill. All of our minds are a bit like drunk monkeys. They're sloppy, they're curious, they're all over the place, easily distracted. It's the natural state of our mind to be distracted. A disciplined mind requires conditioning. And that's part of sports psychology.
1: My guest is high-performance psychologist Michael Gervais. He is the host of the podcast Finding Mastery. something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So Michael, I think when people think, or when I think of someone like the people you work with, top athletes, top musicians, top people tops in their field, that they have this very disciplined life, and I, I somewhat interpret that as being kind of like like they don't really have much fun, you know that they they're so worried about being so disciplined all the time that you know it's it's like the the athlete who is so disciplined that he, he t- you know turns down the birthday cake at his own party that it's it's just like I don't want to live like that.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Okay, so this is I think the takeaway for for elite athletes and performers is not that what they do is so extraordinary. It is. It's rare and it's beautiful and they make things look easy, but it's that they've dedicated their life to get better. They've dedicated their life to grow. And why do that? Why, why do we make some sacrifices that seem outrageous? It's because we know that the cost of giving into whatever temptation, the cake or whatever actually gets in the way of deep joy and fun. And it's, So there's a difference between being fully present and experiencing deep joy and deep presence, as opposed to taking the easy way out, which is consuming ourselves with pleasure. And pleasure from a hit of a cake or a hit of a whatever, 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 all of that is a quick little buzz or stimulation of pleasure. And there's a difference between the deep knowing and the dedication to the path of mastery versus the um, more traveled or more common path. Of consuming pleasure. And there is a difference between the two. And what I would suggest is that the disciplined mind, while it is hard and takes time, and you've just got to put in the work, the reward is that you get to celebrate and be more fully present in life. And that's where the really amazing things happen. It's not about the outcome. It's not about making more money, bigger car, you know, bigger house on the hill. It's not about that. It's the reward of the knowing and of being fully present. Of what it takes to do that and to live that on a more regular basis
1: you don't think that top performers think about or or are motivated by the money and the fame and the glory and the, uh, the, the that it's somehow more mystical and deeper than that i i don't think i agree with that
0: well i've been i've been in this world for a long time and i think what you're saying is partially correct which is that there are two different forms of motivation. There's internal and there's external. And the external is what we're talking about, like fame and money and everything uh, that we, that is outside of oneself. And, yes, there's a healthy percentage of people that are externally driven and motivated. But the tip of the arrow ones, the special ones, it's about the way it feels most of the time. Not always, right? There's There's... <laughs> there's people on the world stage that eat the worst food you can imagine and are the top performers. They are, they do not condition their mind, but they're freaks genetically. And they, you know, they stick out in any group they go in, uh, that they're in, in across the globe. So there's always these exceptions that uh, are important to, um, to capture. But, they, but, but most people, the tip of the arrow, like it's towards the top 2%, it's an internal drive that is ridiculous. And it's about getting better and the feeling of getting better and what it feels like to be fully present in challenging conversations, challenging environments.
1: So how do I start to get on the bus here? What what where where do you if this all sounds appealing to someone of, you know, I really there's there's room to grow here and you can really be a better performer. Where where do you even begin?
0: Yeah, and I would capture that word performer with an asterisk is that all of us are performing by being and I would say the place to start is not trying to just be a better doer, but to be a better being. And so we've adopted this model from the Industrial Revolution that we need to do more to be more. And I think you would nod your head to say, that's broken. We're tired. We're fatigued. Our minds are anxious and worried that we're not going to be able to do enough, and that and that affects the way that we experience life. So that doing to be more is broken. We need to flip it on its head. And when you have enough pain, if you will, discomfort with saying, you know what, this model that I've been using that I need to do more to be more is not working anymore. So wh- what's the challenge? To be more authentic, to be more present, to be more grounded, to be here more often, to be more connected with our loved ones, to be more connected with nature. When the pain and the dissatisfaction of chasing the thing outside of you, whether it's the cake or the glories, when that's not enough and it is not enough, that, that when you accept that pain and say, you know what, that's what it's about. Like, I'm sick and tired of this. That's when change happens. So where do you start? I would start with something as simple as um, investing in mindfulness. Just go do a little bit of reading and then practice. You know, the, um, Do a little reading on the science and the art of mindfulness, and it's not hard to do now. But it's the practice of being and training your mind to be fully present on a more regular basis.
1: You say that when peak performers train to do what they do, that they train differently than the rest of us. How? How do they do it differently?
0: Um, and again, I'll put an asterisk. Not all not all people on the world stage, you know, do it one way. But what I would, as a trend, most people on the world stage, when they are engaged in the thing that they're doing, the craft that they want to practice, they're in it, and it's hard, and it's nauseatingly challenging. How focused they. Are during those moments, they create their ecosystem and their environment to push them to the edge of their instabilities, whether that's emotional or physical. And so they get right up to the edge of instability, which is hard to operate in that space. And so they their output is extraordinarily focused and extraordinarily challenging. And that's a day-to-day basis. So if you were to imagine going to the gym and working as hard as you could physically today, and you don't do that on a regular basis. You'd be hurting tomorrow. Your body would say, what have you done? We just went to the edge of our abilities. So you, the average person needs a lot of time to recover. But they are so, so talented at doing that on a regular basis, their body has become conditioned. And they don't have that deep fatigue on the next day, just like you and I. But their levels are so deep that their fatigues, um, they come at higher co- or higher outputs. So what I'm suggesting is that the doing is very disciplined, very focused, and it pushes them to the edge of their capacity. And that's what we can learn from great doers, is to be highly focused at what you do and run right to the edge of instability as often as you possibly can. And the new the new frontier is emotional instability, not necessarily physical, but emotional instability, where it's, it requires great vulnerability to say or do something or take a shot, if you will, um, take a risk at, at expressing oneself, either physically or, or verbally.
1: Well, I, I like that idea of, you know, you really do have to push yourself to the edges of your ability, because, I mean, if you're going to be a, a great piano player, you don't get great by playing the same song over and over again. You get great by playing more difficult songs, and that's how you develop your, your skills, and that's how you get better. And it's good to hear the science behind all of this. Michael Gervais has been my guest. He is a high-performance psychologist. And his podcast, in which he uh, interviews a lot of the high-performance people that he works with and others, is called Finding Mastery, Conversations with Michael Gervais, which you can find pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you, Michael.
0: Thank you for the conversation
1: while i am fascinated by science and math i've never been particularly good at either one and if you went back and looked at my grades at school uh, they would reflect that fact quite clearly my dad was good at math he was an engineer he was very good at math but it didn't rub off because i just i just wasn't nevertheless i understand how important numbers and math are to our lives And no one explains this quite as well or quite as interestingly, in my opinion, as Ian Stewart. He's a mathematician, a retired professor at Warwick University in England, and he's written several books on math. His most recent one is called The Beauty of Numbers in Nature. Hi, Professor. So let's start, because I think when people hear, oh God, they're going to talk about math. So let's start with something right off the bat here that everybody would find interesting.
2: I mean, we all all know what the equals sign in mathematics looks like. It's a symbol that's very familiar to short parallel lines. But where did that come from? Somebody must have invented it. And in that particular case, we actually know it was a Welsh doctor called Robert Record. He was also very interested in math. And in 1557, he wrote a book called The Whetstone of Wit. And in it, he introduced this symbol. And he says... I will settle, as I do often in work, use for a pair of parallels, lines of one length, because no two things can be more equal. So not only do we know who invented it, we know why he invented it.
1: Because those two lines are always equal.
2: Very hard to think of anything that's more equal than two parallel lines. So quite a clever man. Uh, I am another one to pick at random. There's a thing called the kissing number. Sounds interesting. Suppose I give you uh, some coins, you know, let's say they're quarters, they're all the same shape, and you stick one of them on the table and then you start arranging as many as possible around it to touch it. Now, you don't have to do a lot of experiments to discover that you'll get six coins surrounding the central one. They form a little, nice little hexagon. Um, So the kissing number for circles is six. So the question is, what's the kissing number for spheres? If you do it with tennis balls, what happens? And there was a long historical argument. Um, One of the people arguing was Isaac Newton, who, of course, is very, very famous. And Newton said he thought the answer was 12. And the other one was a, a Scottish mathematician called David Gregory who said, no, I think you can fit in the 13th sphere. All of this happened in 1694. It was a long time ago. Well, it turned out Newton was right. The answer is 12. Um, mathematicians have actually looked at higher dimensions as well, and sometimes they know the kissing number, and, and quite often they don't. It's still an open problem. So there's a that actually has applications to um, to codes and to things like digital radio and television and the internet and things of that kind. Um,
1: you talk about it, and everyone's heard of the infinite monkey theorem—that you know, if you give monkeys a typewriter eventually they will, you know, they'll type out the complete works of Shakespeare, and, and, and this is, <laughs> this has actually been tested.
2: Yeah, and um, this, this dramatizes two things about random sequences. Firstly, anything can turn up, um, so the result not, need not even appear random. It could look like Shakespeare. On the other hand, it also, if you do the sums, I, I, I wouldn't hang around waiting. I mean, you'd, you'd have to wait far longer than the lifetime of the universe for the monkey to have any chance of typing a few sentences of Shakespeare, let alone the whole thing. Um, nonetheless, in, in a sort of mathematical sense, it's true. Uh, it's quite an interesting problem. People have actually done experiments with real monkeys. <laughs> this doesn't work very well. <laughs> the...
1: Yeah, I, I, I would think the monkeys might not be as cooperative as you'd like them to be.
2: They were, yeah, well, basically the, the, the monkey just sat there and pressed the same key over and over and over and over again and typed about 17 lines of S's, and then it got fed up and trashed the keyboard, and that was the end of the experiment. Um, people also tried simulating it with a computerized monkey, and the best experiment to date got about 19 letters of part of Shakespeare um, before it ground to a halt with a percent sign and other um, non-Shakespearean symbols. But, um, you know, some very interesting probability calculations and some ideas this is related to to more important problems in physics as well so um you know this this is this is a a piece of mathematics that we've all heard of, but perhaps don't realize is actually genuine mathematics.
1: one of the things that I once heard discussed, and it really stuck with me was the invention of zero, and that zero didn't come along for quite a while, and that Math without zero is very difficult.
2: That's right. Um, I don't talk about it here, although I do mention it. There's a a timeline of important mathematical events near the end of the book, and the invention of zero comes in three times. (laughs) Three different civilizations invented it. Uh, In two cases, nobody noticed, and it died out again. Um, But the... Indian mathematicians, the Hindus and soon after them the Arabs, um introduced our, our what is effectively our current system for writing numbers with nine digits plus zero. And once you start thinking that way, without zero, you have a big problem which I mean if I write down nine three five with no zeros, is that nine hundred and thirty five? Is it nine thousand three hundred and fifty? Is it nine thousand three hundred and five? Uh, you don't have a symbol for a gap where the number doesn't occur. So the Indians decided that a symbol for zero actually made a lot of sense for doing the calculations. But later they realized, and this is much more subtle, that zero is a number. Uh, It comes before one. Um, It's a number on the same footing as everything else. And it sounded crazy, because if you say, I've got a number of sheep... And somebody says, how many of them have you got? You say, zero. The response is, you haven't got a number of sheep. You haven't got any sheep at all. (laughs) Uh, But I think it was when they started to use negative numbers to represent debts in financial calculations. And if I've got five pounds and then I pay five pounds out, let's say, then I'm left with zero pounds. And you want to write some number in the, in the ledger, in the book, to say how much money somebody's got. And uh, zero is necessary.
1: So what are some of the other big monumental moments in math?
2: One of the big monumental moments was the invention of calculus. So that was Isaac Newton and Gottfried Leibniz, and they introduced this because they wanted to understand physics, basically, they wanted to understand how the world worked. Um, the invention of geometry is actually very important, especially the um, Greek version of geometry, where logical proof came into mathematics. It may be a bit dry, um, but it was very, very important for for mathematics as a whole.
1: So, uh, talk about pi. You know where where it came from and what's so important. What's so important about pi?
2: What's the point of pi? Um, Pi comes into a lot of mathematical problems. The main ones, the obvious ones, are to do with circles. If you have uh, a circle with a given size and you want to know how how long the circumference is, the perimeter of the circle, then you have to multiply the diameter by pi. And for practical purposes, pi is about 3.14, and that's pretty good. I mean, if if I'm a, an engineer designing a um, a racing car, and I know what size the wheel is and how fast the wheel is spinning, then I can use pi to work out how fast the car will go. So it actually relates the, the, spin, spin, of the, the spin of the wheel to the distance and speed of the car. Um, but there are other practical problems. We, we, had, um, we, we had a bathroom tiled recently, and at one point the tiler said to me, you're a mathematician, aren't you? I said, yes. He said, there's a formula for the area of a circle, isn't there? I said, yes. He said, I used to know it at school, but I've forgotten it. I need to know it because somebody wants me to uh, tile a circular floor. So I need to know how many tiles to use. So I said, it's pi r squared. Oh, right, says he. That's great. So um, (laughs) it was at least a benefit to the tiler. It's really important for more theoretical reasons. Pi is a very interesting number, and it comes up in other parts of mathematics as a very fundamental thing so the more we know about pi and i mean nobody cares what it's what it is to millions of decimal places but actually we do know that nowadays because people use this to test new computers but um you know theoretical properties of pi are actually very central to mathematics what's
1: the what's the hairy ball theorem i i don't ever recall coming across that in my extensive mathematical studies the hairy ball theorem
2: you can't comb a hairy ball smooth. <laughs> Suppose I've got a, a sphere covered in fur. If you, if you stroke the fur like you would stroke a cat, you can't make the fur lie down smoothly everywhere. At some point, at least one point, the fur will stick up, and there's no way to get around that. Whereas if you had a hairy donut, you could, actually, you could imagine putting your hand through the hole in the middle and just stroking all the way around, and it would just everything would lie smoothly. So this actually tells mathematicians that in a very fundamental way, spheres and doughnuts are different from each other.:
1: Which is important why? for for who, how, how?
2: it It has some practical applications to um, weather patterns on the surface of the Earth, which is a sphere, and to fusion power to 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 magnetic bottles that contain very high temperature. Uh, plasma in fusion reactors which people are trying to build at the moment in the hope that these will be a very uh, effective and cheap source of power at some point in the future. Um, Basically it says that making a spherical magnetic bottle is not a bright idea and in fact what the physicists now use and the engineers now using is donut shaped bottles. So there are actually uh, some some real world applications maybe a little bit um, you know sort of esoteric but nonetheless uh, quite important.
1: So when people find out that you're a mathematician, what do they ask you? What do they say? You know, I've always wondered about this thing, or what what do you find that people uh, are most fascinated or curious about when it comes to mathematics?
2: Okay, um, why does toast always land butterside down?
1: Hmm. Well, well, that wasn't the the genius mathematical question I was hoping for. But uh, okay, so why does toast land butter side down?
2: And you you know the the standard joke: if it lands butter side up, then you must have buttered the wrong side. Um, this sounds like an urban myth, but actually there are mathematical reasons why it's true. Um, if you use the kind of math that Isaac Newton could have introduced and work out what happens to slice of toast when you nudge it gently off the edge of the table which is kind of what usually happens as it falls it starts to tilt and as it leaves the table it continues to tilt and you can calculate the speed at which it tilts and how far it falls And when you put all that together you find it's much more likely to fall butter side down basically it makes half a turn before it hits the floor
1: but but that's because it started butter side up right so that if if you put a piece of toast butter side down on the table and knocked it off the table, then it would land butter side up, right?
2: Yes, it would. If you don't mind a mess of butter on your tabletop, if you butter the toast, turn it over, and then knock it off the edge, the same calculation says it will land butter side up. So the real point is that the side that's up when you start is down when you hit the ground.
1: So then it also has to do with the height of the counter then, right? I mean, if you had a a, a much higher counter, a ten-foot-high countertop, it would have more time to tilt, so it, it could conceivably land differently.
2: It, it only works with normal human-sized kitchen tables. Um, if you knocked it off the top of a tall cupboard, it might well flip over twice and then end up butter-side up again. Um, so, In fact, the person who did this says this is not actually a coincidence. Um, It's to do with the fact that humans are at the particular height they are and gravity is the particular value that it is. But actually our height is related to gravity. If we were much taller than we are, if we fell over and hit our heads on the ground, we'd probably kill ourselves. So there is a sort of limit to how tall it is sensible to be. I don't know what giraffes think about this particular calculation, but um, nonetheless, it's not totally serious. But there there actually seem to be some fundamental reasons why... Um, we are the height they are, and of course, kitchen tables are the height they are, because they're about half as high as we are, because we like to sit down when we eat.
1: Well, that's pretty interesting. I've never thought of that before, but it is interesting that we're as tall as we are, and not a whole lot taller, because if we fell, we'd fall a greater distance, hit our head harder, and and kill ourselves. So uh, evolution must play a part in that.
2: If we were made of the sort of stuff that we are currently made of, you could imagine a a race of super-strong aliens or something where all of this was nonsense or or even one that was clever enough to keep its brains in its feet. Um, But if you keep your brains in your head and stick it on top, which is actually a very good place for the visual system because you can see further, then uh, creatures like us made of the sort of stuff we are made of should not be much taller than we are because there is a serious danger that when they trip over they'll kill themselves. Yep.
1: Well, see, that, that's why it's so interesting to talk to you, because you make me, and I guess everyone else, think about things <laughs> like why don't we have our brains in our feet and other interesting things. Ian Stewart's been my guest. He is a retired professor at Warwick University in England. He is a mathematician and author of several books on the subject. His most recent one is called The Beauty of Numbers in Nature, and there is a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you, Ian. <music> nearsightedness, or myopia. It's the ability to see things close up just fine, but things in the distance look blurry. I've had it since I was in college. Not bad, but but I have glasses to correct for it. And myopia is becoming a bigger problem. In fact, up to 90% of teenagers who live in China are nearsighted. 60 years ago, it was only 10-20% to of Chinese that were nearsighted. And it's not just a problem in China. Many places around the world are seeing this. Experts say the phenomenon could lead to more cataracts, glaucoma, and even blindness down the road. So why is this happening? Well, for years, myopia was thought to be genetic. But what's happening in China proves that that can't be it. Then we were told it was because of close-up work. That we were spending too much time looking at things close-up, like computer screens, and books, and not looking off into the distance. Well, apparently that's not it either. An article in the scientific journal Nature says the most likely culprit is lack of bright light. In multiple studies, kids who spent more time indoors had a higher risk of developing nearsightedness. And it doesn't have to do with physical activity, it just has to do with physically being outside and being exposed to bright light. When you're not exposed to bright outdoor light, it inhibits how your eye grows. And that is something you should know. You know, one of the criteria people use, you probably use this when you're looking for maybe a new podcast to listen to, is you look at the ratings and reviews. Not only what they say, but how many are there. Because if it has a lot of ratings and reviews, it means it probably has a lot of listeners. So you could help us by adding your rating and review wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, wherever you listen, leave a rating and review, and that helps us. I'm Mike Ruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know